All right, so let's jump into our topic. Okay, so moving on, we're going to talk about our topic. I like options. I love that you get such a thrill out of that, Jason. Do you think this shit just happens? Editing is a science. (laughs) Is that what it is? How dare you? You know what? Oh, we're going to have guest editors and we'll see what kind of bullshit you two put out. I know. I make you sound good. Uh, Both of you. You actually do. Both of you. No, no doubt. I appreciate it. Don't you dare. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hello. What's up? Happy spring, everyone. Yes. Yes. It's been beautiful. Beautiful. This is my this is my time. This is my time. Winter doldrums are over. But how are you doing? <laughs> Same. I'm actually out in the desert in Cali and enjoying it. It's like so nice. <laughs> nice. Jason, are you, you... look up and you can see the sky. It's kind of cool. I love it. Jason, are you calling in from somewhere beautiful? Because it kind of just looks like your house in there. <laughs> it is just my house. It's, it feels like it's 90 degrees. I was telling Trisha before we got on, I have to be honest, I'm only 50% here. Happy and I binge watching Sherlock because it disappears from Netflix next Friday. And so my mind is half in London with Sherlock Holmes. Like oh I'm my gosh. Ooh, what does that smudge mark mean? Ooh, what's going on right there? That's an intense show. It's it's really good. It is. It's really it is. good. Trisha was uh well, Trisha was a what Benedict Cumberbatch person. Yeah, I was. Back in the day I was. Yeah. Oh, you've given it up? I mean, I actually, I mean, nothing's there anything wrong with him, but you know how, you know how my, my tastes are. I yes. get into that. Fickle. Fickle. She's moved on. She's moved on. She's done with Benedict. Very fickle. On. Can I, you know I what, I am. you know what story I love? Like Jason, I don't know if you've heard this story. Trisha, get ready. We were at some house party on the Lower East Side. We were talking about men or something and Trisha's like, uh, Lord, just send me an irresponsible grad student. Just someone fun, not too serious. So we go to this party. <laughs> go to this party. And who's the guy who like zones on, on Trisha and spends the night talking? Some like hippy-dippy, unemployed, possibly homeless dude. <laughs> and I was like, well, Trisha, you got what you asked for. You got the attentions of an irresponsible, not even a grad student. But anyway, I think about that. That lives rent-free in my mind. I think about that. You know, the only thing I got about <laughs> the only thing I got out of that interaction was his Armani glasses, right? Is that the guy who That's Armani? right. And then you stole his glasses. <laughs> no, you know what? I don't know what happened. We were playing with it, and then I left the party. I was like, wait a minute, I still have this guy's glasses on me, and I still have them to this day. <laughs> You're kidding. That's oh a great God. story. Oh my God. That's a great story. God sends you the man you ask for and then you promptly rob him. That's awesome. I, I The good weather has really brought people out. I think there are several people who should be in horny jail today. I don't know what it is about me today, but the place that I go to get my egg sandwich in the morning, the guy's clock that I'm gay, the guy who makes the eggs. So now 
I mean, now whenever I ask him for anything, he's like, do you want anything else in the egg? And then he'll like wave like one of the sausages at me or he'll like put two eggs in his hand and like roll them around. And I'm like, dude, can I just get breakfast? Like, can you, can I just Wait. not be sexually harassed today? Wait, are you saying you don't enjoy flirting as you're getting your breakfast? And yes, at 7.45 a.m., there's nothing more that I like than some sweaty, like, short-order cook waving a sausage at me. That's what I'm thinking about. That's where I'm at. I don't know. It sounds like it's not a really good show. <laughs> okay. Er, well, <laughs> and then just walking here just now, I passed by this person who made full eye contact and smiled, but I just kept walking because it's New York and it's night, and I'm like, no thanks. He follows me for half a block. Weird, creepy. Because I looked over my shoulder and he's still following me. And I'm like, mm, now what do I do? Go into the most brightly lit place. And I did. I went into Old Navy. <laughs> 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 oh, man. I was like, no, I'm I'm not going to get murdered today. Oh, you had a very womanly moment right there. Yes. Oh, I smile at somebody and now they're convinced we're lovers. I need to go and just make sure I'm in a well-lit place. You know, the difference being is that like, and this is the thing that this is the, I mean, the difference between men and women. Like I never really felt like I was in any real danger. That's the difference, right? Really? Really? Yeah. I mean, I could have taken him. Do you know okay. what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it, that was my first thought. I was like, well, what is this guy going to do other than just be really creepy? But that's, again, that's the difference, right? I've walked so many extra blocks for weird things. I was like, oh God, it's going to take a while. I have to make a journey and a half. So I saw that tweet today where it was like, every woman you've known has uh, taken the long way home, pretended to be on the phone, put their keys uh, in between their fingers. And it was like every single woman you know messed up. Most likely, for sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, how they decide to deal with the world as a result. Well, that's <laughs> the world. You could always do the, go the promising young woman route and just like spend all your time catfishing men and teaching them a lesson, I suppose. Uh, I've had a lot of feedback about that episode and about our opinions on promising young oh. women, I have to say. Really? Uh, oh. Yeah, we've already talked about it, so it's not any, for the any podcast. Any takeaways? Uh, no, just basically people who disagreed with me, so not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to define it. Yeah. <laughs> people who are wrong. Just yeah, people just people who are wrong. <laughs> People who like the movie and thought it, it had something people new and fresh it. to say. And I was like, all right, that's fine. Okay, let's move on from all of this. Let's jump into topics. Jason? You know, maybe a month or more ago now, the Georgia legislature and the governor passed and signed into law a voting rights law, which unfortunately threatens to really restrict voting and further disenfranchise lots of people. We saw some corporations, once the law was, was passed and signed, come out publicly and, you know, kind of complain about the law. You saw this, I think, from Delta Airlines, which is headquartered there, and Coca-Cola. The question, you know, that I want to pose for us is, what is the role of a corporation or of corporations in general when a law like this gets passed? I mean, are corporations generally conservative, interested in kind of maintaining the status quo? Are they just apolitical? What role do they play? What role should they play? So I have to admit that I'm being influenced by the last major book I read, which was W. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction. He posited that business is going to adapt to whomever was winning the Civil War. 
So as it looked as if the South was triumphing, they were probably going to adjust their business practices accordingly. And so I, I find myself stuck with understanding the way that the business community responds to large ethical questions in very much the same way. I think to myself that we haven't really articulated in a thoughtful way where businesses are supposed to land when it comes to issues around what maintains our democracy. Are businesses pro-voting? Because that's really what that came down to for me. It's like, we say that voting is an inalienable right in this country. Anyone existing in this country should theoretically support that. But I almost want to say that it's not about the business. It's about the fact that we don't have a viable Republican Party that supports the existence Absolutely. of a democracy at this point in time. And so, <laughs> like, how do we hold businesses accountable when we can't actually hold that party accountable? But we will go back to the question of business, right? A lot of Republicans like attacked some of the companies who were in support of the bill because they were like, stay out of it, businesses like, you, you know, just like with entertainers, shut up and saying, hey, businesses, shut up and, and busy or whatever, you know, make your money. And I think that's the issue is that like business is the the as someone said to me the other day, the only sin in business is losing money. And so regardless of what you're doing in any which way is if you're making money, you're winning. If you're not making money or losing money then you're losing. And so the question, are they are corporations political or not? Absolutely. I, I can't wait to hear what you have to say, Jason, because like, I feel like this isn't even like a question. Like, I can't think of how you could be an apolitical corporation because in order to extract the money from the system, you have to engage with so many parts of it and all the people in it. So I, I don't know how you do that apolitically. I, I think when you, when you look at the dynamic of the legislature and the governor enacting this law, and then the corporations responding, and then the Republicans criticizing the corporations. I think it does look pretty simple in some ways of people acting what they what they perceive to be in their self-interest. Like clearly the corporations made a calculation that the many folks they're trying to sell to, which of course is national and even international. So it's not just local Georgia. You know, they made a calculation that by going public and saying something against the law that that was going to help them continue to to you know get more revenue you know some people have observed that it's not like they were out opposing the law when it was being debated mm-hmm. um, they weren't advocating against it as far as we know they weren't lobbying against it so they didn't see that as in their interest and then of course the republicans at that point are going to criticize them because that's going to you know they see that as in their self interest that's going to help them with with their base I think you can see some shift in public opinion that the corporations made that calculus that, you know what, most of our consumers are going to be against this law. That makes me slightly happier than I would be otherwise. But it's the, basically people acting in their the self-interest. The amorality of that, though, I don't know how to, I don't know how the amorality of the corporation in that moment, our consumers care about this, therefore we should. I just, I don't know what to do about it, but it strikes me as very awkward. But well, yeah, you... because because ahead, what Trish. if we what if we waited it in the other direction? What if at some point in time we decided as a society that we were happy with slaves, which we uh, had at some there point. was a time that there the was company a time. was happy Sh- with that. Shockingly, there was mm-hmm. a time. Could we take away those expectations from our corporations and our leaders in that in that which capacity? expectations in, in particular? The, the degree to which we have 
assumed, even as citizens or as people, that our interactions with corporations is also a form of citizenship. Do you know how we're like, oh, yeah. buy this thing, buy this thing to demonstrate. Go, go spend that money. Are- go out and spend money. I mean, yeah, buy right? American. The yeah, whole, it's, buy American thing at its base, it's, right? Spend right. money to be American. Yeah. Or support your small businesses as an act of, you know, citizenship. And I was like, what? How? Where? Why? And so I think we need to maybe like unpack some of that and pull that out and really actually see that corporations are in a transactional way. Therefore, we don't actually expect them to demonstrate good citizenship. And I'm not expected to show good citizenship by giving them my money. I understand really clearly what this exchange is. I don't expect you to do anything that is not going to cost you something in your bottom line on some level. But the cost of that for you is that I don't want you to participate in the political process at all. I guess I have two responses to that. I think a lot of people want corporations to participate, but they want them to participate in the things that they agree with, obviously. I think, and I've said this kind of thing before, and you two are going to want to throw something at me. If we wanted to be serious about, you know, kind of compelling corporations to move in a certain direction politically and otherwise, we'd have to be organized enough and committed enough to say, you know what, if Coca-Cola doesn't lobby against this, a large swath of us is not going to buy Coca-Cola anymore. That's clearly something, myself included, I'm not judging anyone, like we're not wired that way currently. I mean, That's not controversial. Like that's literally boycotts are. No, I wasn't saying it because it's controversial. I feel like when I say things like that, Chris, you're like, well, we're not doing that. So why do you keep bringing that up, Jason? No, actually, you've read me wrong, Jason. (laughs) I I agree with you. I agree with you. I think there is enough space now for corporations to be fully and actively political. They already are. Delta, when it looked like it was going to go one way, threw money um, at Republicans. When it looked like it was going the other way, it threw money at Democrats, you know? It made it was like, we're staying out of the voting thing, and then people got upset, so they're like, okay, well, we're jumping into the voting thing. I, I think it's quite possible for people, for Delta to be like, listen, we're really in for voting, we're really in for Black Lives Matter, and if you, you know, don't like Black people and you like dictators, like, fly spirit, I don't know. There's enough market for that. We're already doing that with our entertainment. Like, can't we do that with other corporations? And I'm not saying can't we do it as if I think that is the best answer. I'm just saying I feel like there's space in the market for that, because appealing to sort of like the middle of the road, like having no opinion. I'm a corporation. I have no opinion. I, like, is this the right market environment? Or or is it because we live in like these elite coastal cities that this that, that I have this opinion? Like maybe in the middle of Hobunk, wherever, people aren't engaged with their corporations, like political stances in the way that we are? Sure they are, whatever it is that stands well, in know, for a corporation, a business, a local business, a little a local mom and pop. I mean, there's some elements of that. We either have to define corporations or businesses broadly as extractive in nature. And then what does that mean? When you say extractive in nature. Which is like, I'm here to take from. I'm here to add value to my own business, right? Not to actually participate in the structure and function of society. To the extent that we agree on that, what what then is the responsibility for a business? Our business is responsible for upholding democracy or whatever government structure they exist under. 
Because that's what I thought the question was for, for, for Georgia, right? If we think voting is a right that we should support as a democracy and businesses exist within this democracy, then we should be like, of course. But that seems like a you know, fairly straightforward equation that I don't think is accurate. Yeah, it's really interesting when you say it that way, Trisha. I mean, what you're saying on, on, on one level makes so much sense. It's like basically like, of course, and at the same time, who knows, I could be wrong, but like my gut tells me voting is not one of the issues that corporations have a strong investment in. Like there are other issues that they see as more, you know, pertinent to their bottom line. I'm not sure like the needle moving one way or the other on voting rights is one of those issues. I mean, you know, it did not get the sense with any of the corporations that expressed, you know, some level of, of protest or whatever that any of them, it was like, because they have some fundamental corporate value around voting, right? I mean, again, it, I know I'm saying it like, and I'm not even saying it from a judgmental place. Like, it really seems to me like it was just basically self-serving. Like, we got to keep our consumers feeling like we're on their side. The, I'm sitting that's here. so limited. I know. It's such, I, a, it's such a limited thing, because what if the consumers decide tomorrow that they, they hated gay people? Do you not have a bar? We're sort of prefacing the premise of Spike Lee's Bamboozled, aren't we? Oh, remind me. I didn't it, see it. You didn't see Bam... Oh, well, spoiling my media recommendation. Um, <laughs> in Bamboozled, a um, out-of-work Black actor decides he can't pitch... Uh, he is an actor. I think he's a writer, producer. He can't pitch anything that the network will buy. So in a fit of peak, he pitches a old-style minstrel show where Black people will wear blackface with giant red lips. It becomes the number one show in America. And then he goes on, like, the struggle of putting on the blackface, making all this money, being very successful. I mean, I feel like that's what we're saying. If corporations only move towards what the consumers want to do, which I, I'm not critiquing that, you know, uh, I, I think I, I would critique capitalism in general. I'm not critiquing the fact that corporations want to deliver what their consumers want to buy. But like at some point, like you're right, if the consumers in mass decide that they want to support something egregious, then there could be some pushback. Listen, if you set your clock by what Americans want, yeah, they want more racism. They want more patriarchy. They want more of those things. Is it possible? I guess if I can shift the conversation. What's what do we do with corporations? They have an, they have an, more money than anything, and they have an outsized impact on politics, which affect us. Like, what are we supposed to do with the corporation? It's you know, wow, this is this may is a, is another topic. I think a lot about this because the model of a corporation, if there wasn't such, and I know this is chicken and egg stuff, but if there wasn't such enormous wealth and equity, or to put it another way, if Americans more broadly could be and were shareholders, the corporation is not to me the worst model. It's actually, and Karl Marx said this, much more democratic than many other economic structures. The problem not the problem, but a big problem in our country is that you have a very small percentage of people that own the lion's share of, of the shares of the corporations. Mm -hmm. That's really the problem. Because if we had, like, as again, as a broad society, all of us had shares in corporations and no one had too many of one, like then you actually, you could have, you know, you have broad-based controlling interests. Like you can- move That's not a capitalist model then, is it? Are you describing socialism, Jason? 
<laughs> you know, it's not, it's not though. I mean, it's, it's something in between. Like I, no, but in, no, in all, but in all seriousness, I mean, again, the early communists and early socialists saw the corporation as a move from feudalism yep. and from, you know, an aristocracy, a caste system to a system with the opportunity for social mobility. The problem is it's got, you know, I'd sound like Elizabeth Warren now, but it's gotten to the point now <laughs> where like a small group of people own them all and they've bent the rules and they keep it that way. Like that's, that's the fundamental problem right now with, with corporations. So anyway, what do you do now, now that it is the way it is? Like, I don't know. Well, I just think, I thought it was really noteworthy though, the kind of flipped script that happened during this moment, which is like, we are the, the GOP, we are the party of big business. Oh, big business, stay out of this. This is not your fight. Um, and yeah. then this kind of yeah, yeah. strange moment where big business is like, well, it kind of is our fight because, but for and me, our, ultimately- our consumers are impacted. Yeah, like at the end of the day, ultimately you want to offer up your resource or whatever business they're offering to people everywhere. You don't want to make a distinction between any of the values those people hold because do you really care who's flying on your flight, right? That's ultimately what you have to decide. You have to err on that side. Um, and so I, I guess for me, I just was really curious about this tension, mostly around the big, the big D not little democracy, but the big democracy, like the big things, what are the big values that we hold sacrifice as Americans? And how then do businesses that operate within your country help uphold or hinder the operation of your country more broadly? And I was just curious where we were gonna land on that. That's really what I wanted to understand. Like I didn't have a necessarily a side in it in the sense of I love that business care or I love that they don't care. But I was just thinking to myself, do we really want to have them put a stake in the ground? Like, I think we should. I don't know how we do that, but I thought we should. I think you can't be a corporation that stands behind people not voting. It just didn't make any sense to me as a business, as, as, as some as someone that exists within a particular in a particular country. I agree. We've already seen, right? Like we've and already seen that. So back to Jason's idea, like if you're a corporation, if you're Delta and you can't equivocally say that at Delta, we agree that people's voices are important. Well, then the only way for us to really punish them is in the marketplace. Like we have to organize and be like, okay, we're all flying frontier now. <laughs> No, we're, we're not. not flying or we're not yeah. flying at all. Yeah. I mean, or like, we're taking but, the bus or hello Amtrak or whatever. Yeah. You know, that, that's the only way. I mean, right. my question of what is to be done with the corporation and maybe that question was too big. I don't know what we do with it. I, I certainly don't. Big. I, but here's a better question. I want alternatives. Okay. You want alternatives, but what does that, what does that look like? Cause I, I want I, an, I want a non-corporate, I want a non-corporate um, flight. I mean, you say that. No, but think about Amtrak. It's heavily subsidized. I want to. I want to think that's subsidized so that my, so that my own kind of. Because what if every corporation decides to go down a particular road? I mean, this is where you land. Right? I mean, this some do. Chick Fil A exactly. is like you know we we were funding <laughs> Family First and like all these other places or, you know, their corporations do and they find their markets. Um, yes, but then what what happens? So then I don't participate in the market. I want an option that is a non-corporate option. Not because I, not because I don't like corporate. Socialism. But just because, but socialism. I want to, I want to, I want, no, that's, no, 
I want a heavily subsidized option. Yeah, that's, and I think that's totally reasonable. And even though, yes, that would get, you know, Trisha would be tarred and feathered as like, this is socialism. <laughs> socialism. Like, have, but but it, Trisha, did, Trisha didn't say outlaw all the corporations. It's no, like, I said they can still option. function. Like, exactly. Can we have public options of things? And then I say to myself, I'm supporting the option yeah. that best supports the country that I want to live in and the kind of, the kind of values that I want to um, stand for. And then you get to do whatever you want as a corporate. As I a mean, corporate. I, we're, but you're just discussing the first thing I discussed, which is the bifurcation of the market. Like, does it matter to you if it's a public option? Like if, I mean. If it's if, a public option, I can hold it accountable in ways that I can't with the corporate. Fair. I see. I you see what I mean? Yeah, I see. That's, I see what you're that's saying. That's what I'm saying. I see. I mean, but then, but then I have Medicare for Hall and everybody's upset. But I'm just saying, like, I think I need, a, I think we need non-corporate options. Don't we think that some of those I mean, options you're, you're should be there? This, this socialist capitalist hybrid model that you're suggesting is very intriguing. It would require us to really do some soul searching as like a people and figure that out. I'm not saying it's not impossible. You know, it would be so intriguing to have like a public option for like air transportation, uh, public transportation. But and we already have but public we, options. But we for, have it. I mean, for yeah, air we transportation, have for lots of things. For air transportation, no, not for air, not for but air. for lots of other things. For, no, I, but I'm saying like I think what you're saying is more public options. I I really like that. I think that's cool. Oh my I, have, I think that's we doable. We don't have public options for clothing, sneakers. Entertainment right, we do for some things. I'm saying, yeah. I feel like we're talking about if there's a continuum and we have public yeah. options for 10% of things. I've never thought about that. Mm-hmm. Increasing it to 50%. I've never thought about that. Like that's that to me is really intriguing. Well, isn't that isn't that isn't that international models? I mean, isn't that heavily subsidized models in European countries function in that way? I, honest, honest to God, I'm like a smart person, and I do not understand not, how listen, European civilizations. Yeah, I don't know how. I, get it. I don't understand <laughs> the modern <laughs> economics of European nations. The way I that they totally are able to blend it. these things, like I don't get it. I don't get it. But I'm so American. I, that's why I don't understand it. Well, I mean, and I and I won't say that I do, but I get the sense that when I travel abroad, a lot of, especially even big, big, big things, public transportation for one, heavily subsidized. Yeah. So your train system, your flights, all of that stuff. And so I think that there's some value in having a public option so you're not at the mercy of whatever. You know, I, I, I thought about doing what I'm about to say for my recommendation. I'm not going to do it for that. So I'll say it now because it's, ve- it's very relevant. There's um, NPR has this like uh, 50th anniversary 50 minute program about how it started. And I mean, it's very much like what you're talking about, Trisha, like Lyndon Johnson signed something creating the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that created PBS and NPR. And it was this decision that like the market was not producing quality. It wasn't producing things that were good for society and that people wanted. And so they created these public things. Personally, I love NPR. I don't know how it competes with other radio stations, but I love it. Great. More of that. <laughs> I mean, I already see how successful the public option conversation is around medical medicine. So we know this is going to be a complex. We want to introduce it to other spaces. Can we say, what about public options for hotels? What about uh, I'm, in, I'm in yeah let's remake society everyone we're gonna move on we're gonna move on to our second topic we are going to talk about names and pronouncing quote-unquote difficult names so at the end of march there was a terrorist attack in atlanta where eight people were killed at three spas in the atlanta area the victims were all asian people immigrants for the most part 
Newspapers and journalists didn't bother to take the time to investigate how to print or say the name of the victims, serving them another indignity after these people have died. So it got me thinking, like one, how do we approach this on an individual level? How do we approach learning names that uh, are foreign to our tongue and to our language? How do we foster an environment where we acknowledge the importance of naming? And how do we avoid colonizing someone's identity by telling them who or what they are or what they should be called um, based on my comfort level? I've just, I wanted to check in with you. I wanna see what you think about this. I think this is a difficult issue. Now, I will say, I think there, there's an extreme where people with like willful negligence will say names however they feel is most comfortable or even to be purposely denigrating. I think of George H.W. Bush calling Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein and not Saddam Hussein, which I remember reading there was some meaning to that, which was very degrading. Like that's an example of like, you're, you're clearly at best not caring at all and at worst actually trying to degrade someone. I do think there's a lot of gray in the middle. Now, you know, I don't know the particulars of the examples you gave, Chris. It's very possible like those reporters or whoever editors like should have done more. And like, they, it may be that they deserve to be. What do you mean maybe literally their but, jobs to get that right? Well, when you say get that right, I mean, this is where I think it's difficult. So like Che Guevara, that's how that name is said, Che Guevara. So mm-hmm. are we now criticizing everyone who says Che Guevara? It is difficult. There are sounds that some people's names have that do not exist in the English language. There are names that are spelled phonetically according to how letters are pronounced in some parts of the world and that they're pronounced differently here. Like, I I think there's a lot of gray here. Now, look, again, I think we should be respectful. I think we should do our best. And there are people who don't do their best. And they, you know, that's a problem. That's problematic. But I don't think this is a simple issue. I'm curious about where we enter this space because I to your point I you know I'm a Jamaican I have a really difficult time with H's <laughs> yes you do <laughs> H's and A's um at the beginning of names you love them the you, throw, yeah, you throw them on names I think you I have know. no problem with H's you I need know. to have more problems I with know. H's Is that right I, I, have, I have hey anyone problem. listening if you know a Jamaican Ask them to say like a word, a name that begins with A, like Agnes, and just see what comes out. Agnes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's mostly H's though. I think there's something fair there because listen, I have a tennis podcast. We, it's an international sport. We struggle with pronouncing names all the time. And sometimes we make a joke of it, but also at, uh, ultimately we, we come down on the side of recognizing that if we're failing to pronounce people's names, correctly and they've told us how to pronounce their names correctly that at some point in time it feels really aggressive it feels like we are saying that what they want don't matter Mm -hmm. and so i think what's interesting in this moment of people actually sort of holding folks accountable to that is to actually introduce in the conversation something i've been seeing which is how would you like me to pronounce your name how is it pronounced and not presuming that i think we have to give people the license for that but i think this is only because we're actually having a real moment of reflection that mispronouncing people's names is actually like the height of colonization language Mm -hmm. which is like we're going to colonize you and we're going to take your name and we're going to say it however we want and you just have to deal with it I think this conversation around pronouncing has really yielded a space for us to finally sort of approach it from that level, which is tell me what you would want. But remember, these are the same folks who are like, I'm not going to do what you want. 
I'm going to do what I want. And I think that's the challenge, right? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I think it's a very small number of people who actually strike that. Where I'm entering into this is because one, names are very important to me personally. I think it's really important that people present themselves the way they want to be known, the way they want to. And if someone says this, is the way you say my name, and it's very difficult, or if it's got the accent, then like I, I try to take the time if there is time to like really work with the person and repeat it and ask them, is this okay? And express like, this is the best that I can do given the constraints of my, of my habits. Like Jason was saying, like there are just some, there, there are some sounds that are difficult for us to make. I dated this French Canadian guy once and he was explaining to me that in, in French, there's like an ooh sound where they bring their lips up in almost a pucker. We don't have any analog for that in English. So there are some sounds that we just can't produce in the same way. It sounds flat in that American flatness, the way we flatten all our vowels. But I'll ask people like, is this okay? The reason why I think it's important is what you said, Tricia, is that colonizing people, you think about all the people who show up in Ellis Island and these Italian names and they're like, you're Smith now, you're Cooper, you're Brown. It's not, it is the height of something. It's, it's microaggressive at best and it's supremacist at worst. Jason, to your point, like as far as the journalists in this particular story, I mean, it's just the hook to talk about this, but like that is literally their job is to look up and figure out how to pronounce their names, which of their names is their family name and which is their given name, like the least that you can do, the least that you can do. I don't know. On an individual level, I think it's important that you like work with people. Is that too much? Like you just do you think that that has changed? I was curious about that. What do you mean? Because I'm thinking about like first generation, second generation narratives around family members. Like, do you think that when some people came to Ellis Island through Ellis Island and someone says, we're giving you an American name, that that was kind of like a sign of a rite of passage? Like, oh, I'm an American now. Or is that some weird fabled narrative that I've fallen for? Who's to say? I, this is interesting to me because my family's name was changed at Ellis Island. No way. Uh, yeah. Actually, this is kind of a crazy story. So not my dad's side. We don't even know for sure about my dad's side. My mom's side, their name in, in Germany and Austria was Becker. But the people I'm directly descended from, they came here from Vienna. So on their papers, it said in German, Vienna, which is W-I-E-N, Vienna. Their name was Becker. They were given the name Wine, W-I-N-E. So you have two indignities. You had... <laughs> They got the city instead of the name, which happened to lots of Jewish and Italian folks. Even Godfather's mother. And, and they changed the spelling to anglicize it, right? So like, now what's interesting, I think, to that question, from what I can tell, you know, my understanding, like a lot of people coming here, like they were worried about being, being discriminated against. They were worried about, you know, being shunned. And so like having an Anglo name, I think some, some folks were fine with it. And then other folks, you know, shorten their names later because they tried to keep their name and then they weren't happy with how they were being treated. I'm not making a judgment one way or the other, but it's a really interesting, you know, historical phenomenon. Yeah. And I was thinking about how, I mean, particularly like with second generation family members often say their parents said, don't speak our language and they anglicize their kids' names. And so then it's like, when you tried to return to, it was really hard. So it, it feels like this has like been a contested space for a long time. And that the acceptance for anglicizing one's name has maybe shifted over time. Because maybe what we have is a, is a, is a notion of kind of American idea being much more expansive now. And that people are saying, well, 
why can't we embody an expansive vision of America in which I get to keep my name and still be defined as American because that's not actually what defines my Americanness, right? That's what I've been curious about is like this invitation to anglicize or not anglicize your name based on a kind of ongoing dialogue with what American, what America means. How do you feel personally, not necessarily making broad cultural yeah. statements, but how do you feel personally about sort of what Jason was saying before people now in 2021 changing their names. So it's more palatable to the public for either entertainment or economic purposes. Can I say it's really hard for me to come down on it because I think of it as branding. I think it's all brands, right? Like your name becomes a part of your brand. Your look becomes a part of your brand. Your body type becomes a part of your brand. And for them, it's kind of like, I think there's an Amer- there's an imagined American ideal. And I want to be closer to the ideal because I'm basically thinking, putting myself on the market. I wish that the marketplace could hold multiple things, but I'm also very sensitive to what the market can hold. Mm-hmm. So if some, but, but again, remember, I was the person who had a roommate who introduced herself with her. Did you tell that, name do you want to tell that I story? Said, <laughs> do you want to tell know, that whole story? I, <laughs> you know, I, uh, it was graduate school. I'm in my apartment. I'm my new, my new roommate is moving in. She comes in and she says, hi, my name is Meng Chen, but you can call me Jill. And I said, why would I do that? You know, and it was great because actually what ended up happening was I said to her, I'm willing to call you what you were named. And so I never referred to her as Jill, but others chose to or not. I don't know. Cause I actually only ever talked. I only ever introduced her as Meng Chen and that's how she interacted with me. And so I basically said, I'm okay with doing what you want, but why would I change? Why would I call you something just cause you perceive it as easier? It's up to me to make the effort. And it's like any relationship. It's up to me to make the effort. If you tell me that something hurts your feelings, I'm going to do the work to not do that thing. So similarly, if you tell me that this is your name and you like it, I'm going to figure out how to call it. (laughs) I'll struggle through it. That seems to be the price I'm supposed to pay for our relationship. Jason, how do you feel in 2021 about people changing their names for economic benefit? Well, I I mean, I don't judge anyone. People should be able to name themselves whatever the hell they want. What is it coming to America? This is America. If a man wants to call himself Muhammad Ali, you can call him Muhammad Ali. But um, but, but I think if people feel compelled to change it because we're too lazy or too biased or too racist or too xenophobic or whatever, like shame on us, um, which it's hard to suss that out. Although it is, it's pretty hard. It's pretty easy to suss it out because we've already figured out they're doing it for money reasons. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's suss out whether we're, we're yeah, I, maybe it is. But I do want to mention, I mean, we did have a president who chose to go by the name Barack Hussein Obama when he had an easy opportunity to name himself differently based on his upbringing. I do think that moved the needle some. President Barry Obama or Barry, Barry Durbin? Dur- Bur- Barry Durbin. He could have gone by his mom's name. Yeah. I am reminded of RuPaul, eternally problematic RuPaul, who on <laughs> his podcast, I think it was Marshala Ali, who, and RuPaul would bring this up almost every episode of his podcast about like, why wouldn't you change the name? Why wouldn't you change the name? You know, you're going to showbiz oh, to the point where <laughs> RuPaul, I think, I think it was Marshala Ali, had him on the show and then asked him that on the, why would you stick with that name? Why wouldn't you change it? I loved his answer, uh, which I, I won't paraphrase here, but basically he was like, that's my name. 
that's my family's name. It's the name my parents gave me. Why would I change it? And I was, you know what though? I, and I, I was kind mem- of agree. With who? With Paul. Oh, I need I to mean, distance myself from Trisha's comments. No, I need to distance myself what? from Trisha's comments. No, 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 no. I think what RuPaul is, what I think, listen, listen. I can't yourself- believe in a room you are agreeing with RuPaul. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. What I'm agreeing with is RuPaul's recognition that this is show business. And that ease of pronouncing one's name and ease of creating like a name that like slides off the tongue is part and parcel of the branding conversation that one has. I think that's what's interesting for me. Not that I agree with him in that he should, but kind of this idea that, hey, you didn't do the easy thing. Like you didn't do the thing that the business often asks you to do. Like I just think that, because remember, RuPaul was like, call me RuPaul. RuPaul, that's RuPaul's name, actually. That's his given name on his birth certificate. But also, you're giving too much grace to him because, like, he wasn't coming from Marshala, like, oh, you did the, like, oh, that's cool. He was generally perplexed why you would oh. continue to call yourself by your name when there's money to be made. That's what I'm saying. Why would you be surprised by that? RuPaul's very thing is make money. Yeah. You got make some money for me. Yeah, I know, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, that's probably, that was his early catchphrase. You got some money for me? And America said, yes, bitch. <laughs> yes. So he's sitting here going, honey, you're leaving money on the table with that name. <laughs> I just, I mean, you're leaving the money on the table, but you get to keep your dignity. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, people have made that calculation. Yes, or maybe I'm reading, and maybe, it, listen, and maybe it doesn't matter so much to people. There, there, I mean, I do think this is another area maybe the needle has moved. Like, there are a lot of very popular actors who have names that are difficult for the average American to pronounce or are not common. I love that uh, Thandi Newton has gone yeah. back to her actual name, uh, which is uh, spelled T-H-A-N-D-I-W-E. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And I should learn. Uh, she hasn't told us. Uh, she hasn't told us. Name. Okay, so like I think it's, I think it's wonderful because someone changed her name. It was some mistake on some credit, and she just went with it. I think it's a, a reclaiming moment for her. And listen, before we wrap this up, listen. My parents picked me and my brother's names based on they wanted us to fit in. They wanted us to on a resume on the phone. They wanted us to just fly under the radar. You know, they didn't give us one of this, you know, Jamaicans name their kids all sorts of things. And so they were very goal directed in making sure of that. And I don't know how to feel about that. I, I mean, I've always been Chris, so it, it doesn't matter. I've never had to change my name or identity. What am I trying to say here? I get why people do it. I just, I'm not, just not certain that either we need to do it anymore or we should be. Shoulds are tough. But well, that's you want a, them but, to feel free not to. I, I would like people to feel free. And but like to Jason's well, point, I'm not I dictating, agree. I'm not dictating that anyone do anything. You know, if your name's Marshall Ali and you're like, you know, I'm I'm Ben Smith, like see my new movie, go nuts, Ben Smith. Do you? Like the kind of pressure that not even pressure, but just what happened at like Ellis Island or like the pressure like RuPaul's puts on people <laughs> to be like to answer for the fact like how dare you keep your name like i i want to think that we're past that moment and then on the personal level i just think we should like you both said do the best that you can have a conversation if you're in a relationship with people and then also not for nothing if it's your job to pronounce people's names do your goddamn job no yeah i guess so do you no, know? I mean, I guess that's, at the end, that's fair i guess at the end of the day you don't want to have a transactional 
relationship with your name. Yeah. We have to take a moment to just say, if you're going to change your name, you change it to Whoopi Goldberg. That's like crazy. <laughs> you know what's oh, the, you know what, you know why she picked that name though? First of all, her name is Karen Johnson. Oof, so no one's, no one's watching Color Purple starring Karen Johnson. Second of all, Whoopi Goldberg, as she, as she says, she's like, it's fun to say. And she's, right. she's, she's not wrong, right? She's not wrong. Whoopi Goldberg. Exactly. Which, which is the point of changing your name is for it to slide off your tongue because it's a brand. Yeah, it, that's a great point. It is a brand. And for her, it has been a winning brand. Uh, an EGOT winning brand. All right. That's right. Let's move on to recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha. So I am reading the book, uh, The Capitalist University by Henry Heller. And essentially, it just takes a look at, um, I think, primary thesis for the book is that universities and institutions of higher education are there to reproduce people to enter the middle class and the mainstream of America. To that end, any kind of educational programming is intended to make you fit for work. <laughs> and so the idea is that they're just making capitalist soldiers at universities. And that's an exploration of that history over the last 100 years, which is like, has the, can American universities make socialism hospitable? Nope. The primary contention is that American universities are there to make, there to make little capitalists. So it's an interesting, it's an yeah. interesting exploration. But the question then said, how does that gen change what psychology is, what social science, what the social sciences broadly are? It's really, it's really interesting for me. Cool. And, yeah. So I think it's worthy of a read, to be honest. It's an interesting exploration of American universities, why they exist, how they perpetuate themselves, all of that. It's very, that's very interesting because. I feel, I mean, certainly you hear the right wing say that, you know, the universities are too socialist, but even, even there are liberals that would say university faculty, at least are left of center. Obviously it's a, it's a generalization. That's, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting he, thesis. It's an, it, you know, it's totally interesting because his contention is it never is. It's never been a hospitable place for socialist faculty at all. And at, and, at, and at various points in history, they have actually, they have actually purged. Yes purge faculty that are far too left not right-wing faculty they've always purged more left-wing faculty than anything else interesting i might i might mm -hmm. check that out. actually i need something new to read jason so i am listening to the latest season of slow burn i've listened to previous seasons not all of them but the current one is about why we invaded iraq and like previous seasons i'm like well wait don't we always already know that but it's got all this interesting stuff and there's the second episode um, of the current season, there's this great moment when there's this uh, colonel who's trying to convince leaders that biological weapons are a real threat and terrorists may use them. And remember, this is before, this is like actually right before the anthrax attacks and that kind of thing. And this colonel goes into Vice President Cheney's office and is briefing him and Cheney says, can you tell me what a biological weapon looks like? And the colonel's like, it was fascinating because he had never been asked that before, even though he knew no one he met with had ever seen one before. So he reaches into his briefcase and he pulls out a vial and says, uh, like a test tube essentially, and says, 
it looks like this. This actually has a, that's very deadly. And by the way, I just snuck into your office. My jaw like dropped when I heard that. I was like, wow, like that's, that is powerful. Like that's kind of the best presentation you could give if you wanted to scare the hell out of the oh. people you're talking to. Like, yep, this is a real threat. Whoa. Wow. That sounds no, really- he was like, we, we got to start. We got to start getting ready for this. I like the drama of that. Uh, oh. I'm actually going to recommend something that Trisha mentioned last episode. It's a website teachingwhilewhite.org. Trisha, you mentioned this like in passing and I went to it and I have been sharing it around. Teaching While White is a website that collects resources and they have workshops and a podcast around white teachers, how to move anti-racist conversations into the classroom um, and how to be anti-racist. It's got some really great resources. I, like I said, I spread it around to all the white teachers that I know, and they have been really enthusiastic about it. So teachingwhilewhite.org, please check it out. Wow, no one had any fun recommendations. Like those were all pretty heady. It's been a pretty heavy podcast, I think. I thought, I thought this would be a light podcast, but it turned out we talked about some really heavy stuff. We got to lighten lightly. it up. Yeah, let's light, lighten it up. Someone say something light and fluffy. So it's that's the fluffiest thing that comes to mind. What's something you're enjoying that's super fluffy right now? I'm enjoying Sebastian Stan's Twitter feed. Or not Twitter, his Instagram page. I'm his really, own, I'm really, his I'm only really fans a, page? Is that, what, no, is that what you mean no, to say? No, it's Instagram. <laughs> I'm only enjoying, I'm having a Bucky moment, really. There you go. So I'm having it. There you go. Well, there you go. So after all that heavy stuff, uh, Trisha is drooling over Sebastian Stan. And I guess on that note, everybody, bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. bye.